Well, hey, friends, welcome to Teaching Thursdays, an edition of the Better Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 43. Today, the conversation is about the confusing, vague, and highly disputed concept of the millennium. Now, what's interesting about this episode is that we have had many episodes in this Teaching Thursdays series that have led up to today. Now, unfortunately, when it comes to debates about the end times especially, the conversation starts with the millennium. In fact, one of the most confusing parts about end times is that the different theological positions on the end times are named by how they understand the millennium. But if you've been following the episodes up to this point, you'll know that there are so many other things we have to take into account other than just how we believe the millennium takes place. And in fact, if we don't have the groundwork that we've covered so far, the millennium is vague and confusing. But today we're going to ask this main question. How does the millennium relate to the second coming of Christ? If we're able to adequately answer that question, the who, what, when, where, and why of the millennium become much more clear. Well, without any further ado, let's launch into this episode. And for show notes on this episode, be sure to check out betterbiblereading.com forward slash episode 43. Thanks for listening. When it comes to covenant theology and dispensational theology, one of the largest differences is the millennial view because dispensationalism is not just a method of interpreting the Bible, but it's also its own view of the last things, its own eschatology. And so uh, this morning we're going to kind of have an introduction, a survey to the millennium and we basically have either two or three times left in this. It just really depends on how far we get uh, this morning. But pretty much this is going to be our last kind of doctrine or uh, sub-doctrine with covenant theology and dispensational theology. And that is uh, studying the millennium, trying to come to an understanding and how uh, Reformed theology and covenant theology differs from dispensational theology. But what I'd like to do is read... Uh, the entirety of Revelation chapter 20, because when it comes to the millennium, this is the key text. In fact, this is the only text in the Bible that explicitly mentions a millennium. And the word millennium itself is not even used, but the reference to a thousand years is used several times in in Revelation chapter 20. But what I want to do very quickly, we've looked at these briefly before, but what I'd like to do is very quickly write four terms for you um, as a way of describing the millennium. Okay, and we'll talk about these after we read. But pretty much in, in theology, in the study of the Bible, there's really four views, distinct views, when it comes to this 1,000 years. And although there is some continuity between all four of them, there are some very significant differences as well. Um, So what I'm going to do is read chapter 20, 15 verses, Revelation chapter 20, 
Just follow along with me in your Bible, and we will uh, think through this together and talk about it after, after I read. Here's what the Word says. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended... Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints, the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So at this point we've come to, excuse me, the final phase of redemptive history, the concept of the millennium. And probably the biggest question, the most important question we could ask uh, in terms of trying to understand and sort through all this is how does this relate to the second coming of Christ? What is the relationship between what we just read in Revelation chapter 20 and the second coming of Christ? If we can adequately answer that question, then a lot of the somewhat vague or confusing elements in chapter 20, talking about the millennium, the the who, what, the when, where, and why, uh, then all of those things uh, become much more clear in light of being able to answer that question, how does this relate to the second coming of Christ? And that really brings us to a definition of these four terms, because Each of these four terms, though you see that millennial word in there, 
the prefix speaks of how these millenniums relate to the second coming of Christ. So in other words, the way that the church has tried to define the millennium is always in connection to the second coming of Christ. So let's kind of walk through these. And again, I did mention these several weeks back, but just by way of refresher, premillennial. What does that mean? Well, simply pre before the millennial means that Jesus will return the second coming of Christ before the millennium. So in premillennial, and this is different from dispensational premillennial. This another phrase for this is historic premillennialism, um, and you you will see a lot of, of the kind of first century, second century, third century uh, people. Justin Waters is probably a big uh, example of somebody who's historic premill. What that means is they did believe Jesus would return physically before the millennium and that he would physically reign on earth for a thousand years. Sometimes historic premillennials would kind of be willing to say that the millennium is a symbolic time frame, not necessarily strictly 1,000 years. But either way, Jesus is physically bodily here on the earth reigning in time and space for the millennium. Amillennial, which is nowadays probably the most uh, typical view of somebody who is Reformed, either Baptist or uh, Presbyterian, Amillennial has kind of a uh, misnomer because the A normally is a negation. So an atheist is somebody that doesn't. Uh, acknowledge God or doesn't believe in God. Now, this isn't to say that an amillennial doesn't believe in a millennium, but it's simply to say the amillennial doesn't believe in the literality of it. So an amillennial is simply one who doesn't believe in a literal 1,000-year time frame. In other words, the millennium as such here, Revelation chapter 20, is Symbolic. It represents something that is certainly true. It's not just the whole thing is not just a symbol, but the fact that the millennium, the 1,000 years is used, doesn't necessarily mean that we have to interpret that as a literal 1,000 year time frame. Now, the connection between these two is that all all millennials are post millennials. Now, how is that? Well, simply because an all millennial and a post millennial believes that Jesus' second coming, again, you can see all these connecting to Jesus' second coming. His second coming is not before, but after the millennium. So that means that in both amillennialism and postmillennialism, the millennium right here in Revelation chapter 20, whether it is a literal 1,000 years or symbolic, either way, is happening in the here and now before Jesus' second coming. So the millennium is very much something that happens here on earth before the second coming of Christ. Now, I drew like the chart last time. Uh, I won't do that this time, but <clears throat> normally what you see in millennial and post-millennial is that an millennial is going to say the millennium is literally from Jesus' first coming all the way to his second coming. So that whole time frame from Jesus' first advent to second advent is the millennium. Postmillennials sometimes will agree with that, but they also, um, some of them, like in the past, 
I would say like Jonathan Edwards, for example, would be one who would say that Jesus' second coming and his first coming, I'll move out of the way for those of you who are behind me, that the millennium is literal, but it's literally 1,000 years just before Jesus returns. So you can see in both of those, they're still happening before the return of Jesus. So Jesus is returning after the millennium is completed. Now, this last one is the one that we want to pay special attention to because this class is, after all, a comparative analysis between dispensational theology and um, covenant theology. So dispensational theology is kind of its own category because although it is premillennial just as historic premillennialism is, there's some key differences. And those key differences are really everything that we've walked through in this class. So dispensational premillennialism doesn't only mean that Jesus returns before the millennium, but it has special emphasis on how they understand what's happening in the millennium. So you remember that dispensationalism teaches that before all of that happens, the rapture happens. The rapture happens because the church and Israel are two separate peoples. They're not, there's no um, overlap between the church as a people group and Israel as a people group. So they would say the rapture happens, the church is raptured from this earth. Then the seven-year tribulation happens, which is all about getting ethnic Israel ready for the millennium. It's kind of a time of judgment, but also a time of discipline, kind of all happening at once where ethnic Israel is getting prepared for her Messiah. Well, Jesus then returns on earth and establishes a 1,000-year reign. What is that reign for? The reign is to give all of those promises that were on hold, if you will, during the church age, giving them in time and space to ethnic Israel. So, in other words, probably one of the biggest distinctives of dispensational and historic premillennialism is that the focus, the main star, the character in this whole millennium is ethnic Israel. Everything with the millennium has to do with ethnic Israel. So those are just kind of a very brief summary. You can certainly go online and find out a whole lot more information of these. And since this class isn't just focused on the different views here, I I do want to try to be brief in my uh, treatment of those. But anyways, um, I think that what we'll notice is, first of all, that all Reformed theology or covenant theology I would say 99.9% of the time. I don't want to be too hardcore because there, there, are, there are some uh, in the Reformed tradition. Uh, I'll probably, probably the best example of this would be James Boyce, who was the pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. Um, very influential um, minister, and he was actually historic premillennial, which is rare because almost all the time, those who are advocates of covenant theology are either amillennial or postmillennial. So, and both of those views are well and good. Um, I would fall somewhere in this space right here, uh, which isn't even a real space. But I, I would say that I am. Let's use this wonderful uh, percentage again. I am ninety-nine point nine percent postmillennial. But there are some differences between the two. 
Um, I think Jesse would identify himself as all-millennial, um, but we'll, we'll kind of cover that here um, after a little while. Um, but anyways, you can see in Revelation 20 that that key phrase that you see there is 1,000 years. There's a 1,000-year reign happening. There's resurrections happening. And there's a whole lot of interpretive questions that we have to ask ourselves when it comes to a good understanding of Revelation 20. But to kind of set the backdrop, let's kind of uh, key in on dispensationalism a little bit more um, in regard to the millennium. So what is the dispensational evaluation of the millennium? I kind of gave you a brief synopsis of dispensational theology But let me give it to you straight from, again, Dallas Theological Seminary's statement of faith for their staff because they are a dispensational school. So here's what they say regarding the second coming of Christ. This is Article 20 of their statement of faith for the staff. Here's what it says regarding the second coming of Christ. We believe that the period of great tribulation in the earth will be climaxed by... The return of the Lord Jesus Christ to the earth as he went in person on the clouds of heaven and with power and great glory to introduce the millennial age, to bind Satan and to place him in the abyss, to lift the curse which now rests upon the whole creation, to restore Israel to her own land and to give her the realization of God's covenant promises and to bring the whole world to the knowledge of God. And they cite uh, various verses in the Old and New Testament. In that uh, article, you see language borrowed from Revelation chapter 20. For example, the binding of Satan, the millennial age, 1,000-year reign, But there's some really important elements that we should kind of realize here with what dispensationalism has to say about this this millennium, the so-called 1,000 years. Notice, let me give you kind of some highlights of what I just read. First of all, Jesus' second coming, according to dispensationalism, is not a second coming for final judgment. It's a second coming to introduce the millennium. Let me read that again. He went, he's going to return the same way that he came in person on the clouds of heaven with great power and great glory to introduce the millennial age. So there in the very first uh, analysis, that's a really important, I'll use this phrase here, departure from historic Protestantism. And we'll see why that's the case here in a minute. But we'll move to this next uh, analysis. His reign will consist of binding Satan, lifting the curse of sin, restoring Israel's land, and overseeing their operation as king, overseeing their operation and function as the true covenant people of God. So I said this earlier, I'll say it again. In dispensational theology, the millennium is all about ethnic Israel. That's the focus. Why is Jesus coming back? For ethnic Israel. Why does he have to reign on earth for ethnic Israel? What is he trying to accomplish? All the promises to ethnic Israel. And so there's really a focus, a, a centrality of ethnic Israel 
in the millennium itself. Um, the first coming of Jesus, you'll remember that there was at one point in time where Jesus had just fed the 5,000. And the people of Israel wanted to hurry up and make him king. And it says that he kind of had to evade himself from them because they were going to force him to be king all of a sudden. And this was an interesting moment in time because they really wanted Jesus to be the one who kind of got them out of the tyranny of the Roman Empire. They're really wanting uh, the nation to be this up-and-coming nation once again, just like they were in the Old Testament, right? They wanted Jesus to be this political Messiah who was going to finally get them out of their oppression and bring them to a place of supremacy once again. That's what they wanted Jesus to do. It's interesting that Jesus wasn't willing to do that, right? He stopped those kind of things from happening time and time again. Um, But in dispensational theology, the way that they would explain it is they would say Jesus did come to give them a physical on-earth reign. The problem is they rejected Jesus for who he was. So what happens then? Well, according to dispensational theology... Jesus basically put this whole enterprise of reigning as king on hold. He froze the time clock, if you will, and then instituted the church. The church in dispensational theology, I hope this is all kind of refresher to you guys from some of the things we've talked about before. Um, The church is happening during that time clock being frozen. That's why they say the church is a parenthesis in history. It's not part of the prophetic plan of God. It's just this kind of, you know, when you're playing, I don't know how many of you play video games, but, you know, and arcade games, okay? Let's just talk about that back in, in your day. Arcade games, and you get this high score, and all of a sudden you have this bonus level you just get to play. It doesn't really count for the, the main game, but it's just this bonus thing. That's kind of how the church is, this kind of bonus thing that's not really part of the whole story, but it's just this special time frame. Well, Now that the church and dispensational theology is raptured out, that time clock can start again. Jesus can now be king. Jesus can now reign on earth. This 1,000-year reign can now happen. And that's dispensational theology as it's understood. That now that the church is raptured, now that the tribulation of preparing them for Jesus to come back has happened, they're primed, they're ready to go, here comes Jesus and now this 1,000 year reign to bring everything back. Now the important thing about that is that even in that reinstitution of the promises, in dispensational theology, it's interesting that, you know, we talked about a few weeks ago that the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 A.D., hasn't been rebuilt yet. There's been no temple. Well, in dispensational theology, there's this new temple coming in the future. Whenever that's going to happen, we don't know necessarily. But according to dispensational theology, when Jesus returns and reigns as king, this new temple will be up and running and animal sacrifices will begin again. Now, there is debate in dispensational theology as to whether or not these animal sacrifices will be understood as truly sacrifices or if they're kind of thanksgiving offerings or if they're offerings given in retrospect to Jesus coming and dying on the cross. But either way, 
animal sacrifices will continue. I think uh, J. Dwight Pentecost here in the Things to Come talks about them as kind of memorial sacrifices or Thanksgiving offerings. But either way, you'll notice that this is kind of a rewind in, in a lot of ways to what you saw in the Old Covenant. So here's an interesting uh, analysis. Um, the millennium for dispensational theology is accomplishing all these promises to ethnic Israel. It's that establishment of his kingdom given to them first at his first coming. They rejected it. He put it on hold. Now he's given it to them. But in this whole conversation, there's a really important question we have to ask. Is Israel or the church temporary in nature? There's a really important question we have to think through when it comes to the millennium. Because that's really where the dividing line is of dispensational theology and covenant theology. Is it Israel or the church who is temporary in nature? Now, covenant theology, we would say the question itself isn't framed right, wouldn't we? We would say that there, there isn't a either-or dichotomy happening because if we've walked through the scriptures properly up to this point in these previous classes, hopefully we've come to an understanding that Israel was the church of the Old Testament. Israel were, was God's people, the saints. And you see that phrase used a lot in the Old Testament referring to God's people Yet again, you see the church in the New Testament referred to as saints of God, right? You see this, this fulfillment happening. So it's typical in dispensational theology to say that covenant theology teaches that the church replaces Israel. There's this, here's Israel as a people. They had all this stuff offered to them, but they, they kind of blew it time and time again. Here comes the church to kind of steal away all those promises given to Israel. Now they've replaced Israel. The church has replaced Israel. I think that's a really poor way to describe what's happening because there was never this either or. God promised a people for himself, started with ethnic Israel for sure, but never once spoken of as being limited to Israel as an ethnic people. But that first body of people chosen by God and then the promise extended out. So there's this Ethnic Israel, sure, but also every tribe and tongue and nation and people group, right, in that promise of God's people. So in dispensational theology, the answer to the question, is it Israel or the church who is temporary in nature? Well, dispensational theology would say the church is temporary in nature. Um, that's why it's appropriate to revert back to the Old Testament to give all these promises to ethnic Israel. But the question then moves a little bit because if Israel, as a ethnic people only, if Israel was God's people and Israel was not meant to be temporary in nature, then the church really doesn't function as anything other than we just get kind of you know, you kind of, in certain situations in life, you kind of find yourself just in the right place at the right time. And some, some kind of good event that's not necessarily for you happens, and you just happen to be there, and you just, like a celebrity or something like that comes up, and you had no idea they were there. You just happen to be in the right place at the right time, and you get to meet them, and whatever the case may be. That's kind of how the church is understood in dispensational theology. It's really all about ethnic Israel, where the church kind of just gets, you know... Um, 
guilty by association, if you will. Um, but here's the problem with that. If the millennium should be understood in a different way than focusing on ethnic Israel, then we really should see one continual promise being made, and I hope that this is clear by now, all the way back from Genesis 3.15, God promised he would crush the head of the serpent through the seed of the woman who is Jesus Christ. There's no other people there besides Adam and Eve. So whatever promise God gave to mankind was the promise given to all subsequent offsprings in mankind, whether ethnic Israel, ethnic America, if that's even a thing, ethnic Europe, right? Every people group, the, the question is whether or not you're in that promise, not what nationality you are. So you'll notice that we don't see a reference in Revelation 20 to ethnic Israel. What happens is, this text is used as a template and then applied to all these other Old Testament texts, etc., as being a fulfillment and a promise of ethnic Israel. So here's another thing to consider because I hope by now you realize that there really is a huge difference in what dispensational theology is saying. Let me read this to you. This is another um, statement from their... Uh, Statement of Faith, this is Article 21, and we won't go into this, but I I just want to show you a way that this connects to what we're talking about. This is what they have to say about the eternal state in dispensational theology. Here's what it says, again from Dallas Theological Seminary. It says, we believe that at death, the spirits and souls of those who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation pass immediately into his presence and there remain in conscious bliss until the resurrection of the glorified body when Christ comes for his own. Whereupon soul and body reunited shall be associated with him forever in glory. Now notice this. But the spirits and souls of the unbelieving remain after death conscious of condemnation and in misery until the final judgment of the great white throne at the close of the millennium. So to put it simply, dispensational theology teaches multiple resurrections happening. In fact, they teach at least five distinct time frames of resurrections happening. Let me read this from J. Dwight Pentecost. Here's how he says it regarding resurrections. The order of events in the resurrection program would be first... The resurrection of Christ as the beginning of the resurrection program. Second, the resurrection of the church age saints at the rapture. Third, the resurrection of the tribulation period saints. And together with, four, the resurrection of Old Testament saints at the second advent of Christ to the earth. And finally, five, the final resurrection of the unsaved dead at the end of the millennial age. So there's five different resurrection time frames happening in dispensational theology. So, of course, Jesus Christ himself being the first one to be resurrected uh, from the dead, and we follow suit with him. But interesting that two things we want to notice. First of all, dispensational theology teaches that, again, Jesus' second coming is not his second coming of judgment. 
Jesus is not returning to judge the quick and the dead, as we're so used to saying with our historic creeds. Instead, he's coming to establish the millennial reign. And this judgment of the living and dead, at least for the dead, won't happen until after the millennial reign. Because they're going to have their own, that's that fifth and final resurrection. They're going to have their own resurrection that's all about judgment. And that's, again, a pretty big departure from historic Protestantism. Let me just remind you that in the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, Chalcedon, the Belgic Confession, and the Westminster Confession all agree. And notice that's a, that's a huge, wide sweep, right? All the way from the first couple hundred years after Jesus on earth, all the way to the Westminster Confession in the 1600s, all agree in one return of Christ coinciding with a general resurrection of the just and unjust. Jesus is coming again to judge the quick and the dead, the living and the dead. The only way that that could happen is if they are raised together. I actually read this verse um, in my uh, evening sermon last week in Daniel 12. Daniel sees that whatever resurrection is coming is happening in the same time and space. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Well, dispensationalism will say that, yeah, but there's, there's this gap in between the two. He's not talking about a time frame. He's just talking about a reality. So there's actually a 1,000-year time frame between the righteous coming again and the wicked being raised again. So this is a big... Um, kind of departure from what was historically understood as, we could say, the general resurrection. Now, general isn't used to distinguish between general and really cool resurrection. General doesn't mean boring and bland. General simply means the fact that the resurrection that we're waiting for is one and the same for all. Either being raised again with incorruptible bodies in righteousness to reign and rule with Christ forever and ever, or a resurrection unto judgment and damnation forever and ever. General simply means that the resurrection is happening for believers and unbelievers. Did somebody raise their hand? So that's two resurrections. Yeah, the question is what resurrection are we talking about? That's really really the dividing line, um, which that. We'll, we will get into very, very in-depth detail of that, but I, I will go ahead and, and answer that in brief summary. The question is, in Revelation 20, first of all, there's a few questions. First, is Revelation chronological? Is Revelation 1 through Revelation 22 a chronological, futuristic book? Well, in dispensational theology, they would say, of course it is. Jesus returns in Revelation 19. He establishes the millennium in Revelation chapter 20. He executes final judgment at the end of 20. New heavens and new earth, 21. That's how dispensational theology would see it. The problem is, Revelation should not be seen as a strict, chronological, futuristic book. The reason being... Because the earth as we know it has already been destroyed even before Revelation 20. 
and I, I'll, I'll give you specific chapters and things like that um, as we look at it next week, because next week is going to be all about this. Okay, let me back up. Today is really a survey of the different views. Next week will be um, me trying to promote what I think is a proper view. Um, so we'll, we'll kind of get into the, the back and forth um, next week in more detail. So this is kind of a survey week today. But um, then you have in Revelation 12, you have the coming of Jesus Christ and Satan being thrown down from heaven. Now, if that was a chronological succession from Revelation 1 to Revelation 22, you have the first coming of Jesus upon the earth in Revelation 12 and Satan thrown down from heaven in Revelation 12, which would be very complicated to understand if, in fact, it's a chronological book. And I'll read that particular uh, passage there for you. Um, Satan thrown down to the earth in verse 7 of chapter 12. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and power and kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accusers of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And then skip down here, verse 13. When the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to a place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. So that whole concept there, Satan being thrown down and this mention of a male child, you can see back in the beginning of Revelation 12, specifically in verse 4, speaking of Satan, his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all nations with a rod of iron. Now, who's that? Christ, right? Christ reigning, Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, come to my right hand, sit upon... Here, let me just read it for you, actually, because that reference there of a rod of iron is very uh, specific here, speaking of Jesus. Psalm 110, this is one we've looked at a lot. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. So that whole idea of ruling with a rod of iron is attributed to Jesus. Well, in Revelation 12, Jesus is apparently just being born. So, of course, we're not talking about a chronological succession of events here. We're talking about, first of all, symbolism, because Satan isn't a literal dragon. He's not a literal red dragon. But anyways, um, that is just one really brief example of the fact that Revelation doesn't have to be understood in a literal chronological um, development of events. Because if that were the case, it would seem odd that Jesus... Yes, go ahead. I think that there is. Um, 
So I'll give you just a very quick answer. Hopefully I'm not very good at quick answers, but see how I can do. Um, Revelation 20, there's two resurrections happening, at least what we can see here. One is particular to those who do not receive the mark of the beast and worship his image. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And Satan being bound in this passage, it gives the reason and to what extent he's, he's bound in verse 3. Um, I'm sorry, in verse 2. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and showed it and sealed it over him. Here's what his being bound means so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. So whatever way he's bound doesn't mean he's destroyed. It doesn't mean he has absolutely no influence or existence whatsoever, but it means he's bound in respect to his ability to deceive the nations collectively. So this reign and rule of Jesus is happening while that binding is taking place. So the view that is typical among uh, covenant theology is that this 1,000-year reign is happening before Jesus' second coming. So you can either say it's happening now, or you could say it's going to happen literally 1,000 years before his return. That's kind of the the two views. And Satan is bound so that he can't deceive the nations. What that simply means is that so that the gospel can go forth and go to all nations. Um, It doesn't mean, again, that Satan doesn't exist or that he has no relevance, but his binding is that he can't deceive the nations. If he could deceive the nations, then the gospel going out would do no good. Um, And then to back up a little bit too, this is how we would understand that first resurrection. Um, I'll show you um, a particular um, concept of it, but I'll I'll go ahead and give you, um, I think, a really abbreviated version of it in Ephesians. In the book of Ephesians, here's what it says in chapter 2. Chapter 2 of Ephesians, verse 1, it says this about us outside of Christ. It says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. In other words... We were dead because we were being deceived by Satan. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So a few things are happening there. First of all, it says we were dead 
because we were deceived by Satan. We were made alive and are reigning with Christ. And that's not one day so you know long in the distance one day. That's now. When we were saved, we were made alive, resurrected, raised to life, and reign with Christ. That's exactly the language that you see in Revelation 20. Came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now that's why the 1,000 years is seen as representing, let's call it, the church age. In other words, we rule and reign with Jesus Christ according to Paul in Ephesians 2 now. According to John, Revelation 20, this first resurrection is exclusive to those who rule and reign with Christ. That's why John limits this resurrection, this first resurrection to those who don't receive the beast and his image. Don't worship the beast. Because this first resurrection, the reason it says the rest of them didn't come alive until after, is because John is not talking about the difference between a first bodily resurrection and a second bodily resurrection, but rather he's talking about the first resurrection, which is a spiritual resurrection, being brought alive after being dead in our sins. And that is exclusive to those who are in Christ. That's why he limits it in Revelation chapter 20 to those who rule and reign with Christ. The rest of the dead did not come alive until after the 1,000 years were ended, meaning that this first spiritual resurrection here and now paves the way to the final bodily resurrection in which everyone will participate in, Christian or non-Christian. But that first resurrection of Revelation chapter 20 is exclusive to those who rule and reign with Christ which is exactly what Paul says we're doing if we're in Christ here and now. And another example, we'll go ahead and and look at it uh, in John chapter 5. In John chapter 5, there's a lot of things happening here. And unfortunately, right now, I have so many marks that I'm getting distracted of the verse I'm trying to find here. Uh, Let's see if I can track it down. Okay, found it. Sorry. All right, take a look with me, starting in verse 19 of John chapter 5. In John chapter 5, Jesus is asserting the authority that he has. And we're not just talking about authority to perform miracles, but we're talking about the authority of giving life itself. So here's what he says. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only... What he sees the Father doing, for whatever the Father does, that the Son does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor, honor the Father who sent him. Truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. That we would call the first resurrection, the spiritual resurrection, passing from death to life. And what is the qualification of that? It's restricted to 
those who hear my word and believe. That's how Jesus classifies this first resurrection. It is limited to those who hear my word and believe. It's not something that everybody participates in. It's conditioned upon belief. Second, verse 25, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Again, that's the first resurrection. Now we move to the second. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So a couple of just quick things. First of all, as I said, that first resurrection that Jesus talks about, of passing from death to life, which is what resurrection is, is restricted and limited to those upon condition of belief in him. But the second resurrection is the physical resurrection, the resurrection at the end that we're familiar with. And that resurrection is not restricted to those who have belief and those who don't. But rather, he says, the hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. What's going to happen at that time? Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So in this passage, it seems that Jesus is in agreement with what Paul is saying and why Paul can say that those who are in Christ have been made alive, made alive, raised up, and rule and reign with Jesus. So let's just take all three of those together. John Revelation 20 says the first resurrection is only for those who rule and reign with Jesus for a thousand years. We won't get into the details of a thousand years until next week. But just granted, whatever those a thousand years are, and whatever that resurrection is, is restricted to those who are ruling and reigning with Jesus. Paul says in, I'm sorry, yeah, Paul says in Ephesians 2 that there are those who in Christ, who are in Christ are no longer dead, but have been raised to life and seated with him and reign with him. Same language as John in Revelation 20. And then to show that there are two resurrections in mind, we looked at what Jesus had to say in John 5, that the first resurrection is for those who hear and believe in the Son. That is passing from death to life, just as Paul says. But that second resurrection is the bodily resurrection. And that happens to all, the just and the unjust. The difference is not whether it happens, the difference is to what are you being resurrected to? Eternal life in Christ, righteousness, ruling and reigning with him forever and ever, or damnation and destruction. So just kind of a brief summary. That would be why in Revelation 20, we would not see that as two different bodily resurrections, but rather the first resurrection and the one to come at the end the first not being a bodily one, the first being made alive in Jesus Christ. So that's kind of a, a quick treatment of all of that. Um, but next week, we will look in detail at Revelation 20 and 
analyze what dispensationalism says is happening during all of that and what um, covenant theology says happens and all that. And most importantly, how we describe the hardest thing for covenant theology is to describe how can we say Satan is bound right now. The hardest thing for dispensational theology to say is how can the curse of sin be removed and death still be happening during the 1,000 years. So those are two things we need to really deal with next week because certainly there are difficulties with any view holding them to task. Does anybody have any closing questions? I didn't plan on going into all of that, but I didn't want to leave you hanging for a week, so I wanted to just run through that. And we can look at that in more detail next week for sure. But that's just a quick treatment of how we can differ between the resurrections without saying in dispensational theology there are five distinct bodily resurrection time periods happening over the course of at least 1,007 years. Anybody have any questions? Aaron, what's up? In order of significance, uh, that's probably a good way to put it. Um, you have to remember it, it is um, apocalyptic, so it's 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 it's, its own genre. Um, now it is prophetic in some ways, but it's a unique book, um, and I think that it describes. And we'll get into the different views of Revelation next week, but I think it describes um, what was promised and what's coming to pass. Ultimately, So I guess in that way you could say that it is kind of laid out in significance, um, not necessarily importance as if the first part's not important as the last part. Um, but that's probably a good way to, to put it, yeah. Anybody else? Okay, let me pray. If you've enjoyed this series so far, let me invite you to leave me some feedback. You can find this particular podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. And the best way to interact with me in this is to leave a review of the show. Not only will you be helping me know what ways I'm serving you, but you'll also be getting the word out. Remember to head over to betterbiblereading.com forward slash episode 43 to see the show notes from this episode as well as the scriptures that we have talked about. Today's episode of the podcast is brought to you by my sponsors on Patreon. Patreon is where you can support this show and other things that I'm doing, including future video courses. If you want to be like Mark and Marcus and Jennifer, who help support this show and help to serve you by helping me cover the costs that are involved with getting this podcast out to you, head to patreon.com forward slash better Bible reading. You can pledge your support there from another number of different tiers. And when you do, you'll receive some exclusive gifts from me as a way of saying thank you for being a sponsor. And thank you for listening to the Better Bible Reading Podcast. Have a great rest of your day.